morning and welcome everybody. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM 87.6, 87.8 or 88 right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network, wherever you are. Positively different radio in the morning. You are with Lyle and... Renee! Renee, how are you this morning? I'm good. That's amazing. <laughs> Praise God. Thank you. How are you? Uh, blessed. Hey, whoa, whoa. Yes. That's a good word. And, mm. well, you know, I, I like that better because it's like, well... I'm good is okay, so let me let's have a theological discussion right, about whether right. we are good or not. Are you good? Well, no. <laughs> but are you good because you're covered by the blood of Jesus? Yes. Exactly. Yes. So good can be taken either way, but blessed, hey, you can't no one can argue with that. <laughs> I had a friend that whenever you'd ask him, How are you? and like or I don't know, he would just say, Only God is good. I'm like, okay, that's true. That's true, I guess. Yes. <laughs> but you are good if you are under God's grace. Yes. So we can claim that if we have surrendered our life to Jesus Christ only through the power of Jesus Christ. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Ah, it's all good. It's all good. Usually when people say, how are you, mate? I'm like, yeah, all good, mate. You know, all good, mate. This, this is what we say in Australia. <laughs> we, we, we don't have to split hairs here this morning, split theological hairs. It's all good. It's all good. And we're all good here because Jesus is still on his throne. He rules in heaven. He rules on earth. He rules in our hearts. And that means that we are all good. What are you thankful for this morning? Am I allowed to say country music? <laughs> You're allowed to say country <laughs> Yeah, producer Shell sitting out there. Of course, you're allowed to say country music. She comes from a country where they have only two kinds of music. Yeah, country and music. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) or country and western. I think that's how it's supposed to go. It's it's a good genre. Yeah, I I, I just love the fact that you, being an islander, (laughs) are such a country music fan. I think that's the best thing ever. Um, there, There needs to be there needs to be more of it. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. All right, let's have some positively different. Oh, no, no, let's have a prize. Yes, well, the prize for this quiz this morning is a cookbook. It's called The Revive Cafe Cookbook. It includes delicious and easy recipes from Auckland's Healthy Food Haven by Jeremy Dixon. I believe he has a cafe in New Zealand. Yes, um, very famous cafe, very famous cook. Yes, because he, he has really healthy food, like actually legit healthy food in uh-huh, his cafe. It's a global sensation. Yeah. Um, and so there's just 81 recipes from the, his cafe that he uses that you can use to cook at home. And I'm just reading the recipes and they look they look like a fun time, like a pad thai noodle. Mm-mm-mm. Thai tofu curry pie. Wow. Lasagna. Wow. All the wows. <laughs> so if you need a healthy cookbook. So there's um, Asian, there's Italian. Yeah. What other nationalities do we have there? Um, there's Indian. Um, what else? Oh, it's, it's just a it's got them all happening. Yeah, there's smoothies and all the things. Yep. <laughs> all right, it's all right there in the cookbook. If you're feeling hungry right now, I am. Yeah, I'm. You suddenly, I've just had breakfast and I'm hungry all over again. Um, and of course, you know the deal. You win a cookbook from us. You owe us a meal. <laughs> 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 no, nah, that's not really the deal. <laughs> Give us a call. What are the numbers? 1-800-324-843 or text us in at 0491-064-669. Make sure you write those numbers down and save them in your phone. That way, when you can come up with the answer, you can simply hit the Faith FM button and the call will come straight through. What have we got for positively different news this morning? Yes. Well, a bunch of seafarers have finally had Wi-Fi to connect... Um, um, international sa- sailors um, 
with their loved ones in Australia for the first time in 14 months. Um, I, interesting. When I read this story, I was like, what in the world are they talking about? Well, uh, we take internet for granted. Um, but for thousands of seafarers stuck in sh- on ship for up to 14 months at a time, internet connectivity is not the only way to see their love, is the only way that they can see their loved ones. FaceTime, uh, video ca- calls, Zoom. Um, before the coronavirus pandemic, seafarers could access Wi-Fi at ports while cargo ships were docked. But now, because vessels have been forced to dock, um, to anchor several kilometers offshore where a signal is non-existent, which is, I, I had no idea because obviously I'm on land all the time. So I'm like, internet is all, all around us. Yeah, that's right. There's a <laughs> you can't go anywhere with that internet until you start driving to Outback Australia. Or as you say, if you go on a bit of a, uh, Swim out to sea. I swim out to sea. <laughs> yeah. Yes, indeed. So an Australian first initiative trialling Wi-Fi on cargo ships off the port of Glass, uh, Gladstone has allowed sailors to connect up to 20 kilometres from offshore. This is done by... So a technology company is trialling Wi-Fi connectivity to cargo ships, um, and this project is to des- design and improve the welfare and well-being of seafarers. Um, and this story goes on to share just the people that were on the ship and they, how they were able to connect with their family for first for the first time in many months. And um, studies show, and we all know that our well-being is very dependent on our community and how we connect and... Social connectedness. Social connectedness, that's it. And so this trial, it was, uh, it was trialed on them, but it's also the idea is, um, I believe, like you said, there are places in Australia where connectivity and Wi-Fi connection is, um, non-existent and it's hard to, I guess, easily connect with others, um, from there. So, um, this company is, is, is working in conjunction with actually under Telstra to, um, create like Wi-Fi boxes, like sort of like modems, I guess, that can enable, um, people who are in rural areas or people who are out at sea to connect with people and get that reception and that Wi-Fi that's very much needed. Um, it's interesting that the manager director of the Insight Communications, Peter Schmidt, said that he and his team had worked with MSQ, GPC, Telstra, so that the seafarer's mission was, um, a success. He said that until he got on the ship, it felt like it was just another job. He didn't, you know, he didn't see any point. In, well, I guess he just like, you know, this is a project that we're working on. But he said that when you see the impact on the people, the life changing moment, it makes it all worth it. Yeah, that would be absolutely amazing. Seafaring has been one of those, I guess, trades that for thousands, millennia has mm. been one that's been really quite lonely. Mm. Uh, you are separated from family for a very, very long time periods of time and now we're able to do something to reduce that separation a bit that is fantastic and really good news that's Mm -hmm. a very positive story right there well about more we're going to go on to another story oh before you do before you do had had another attempt on the quiz yes and somebody has tried with worm oh also incorrect but a very good guess yep but we're eliminate. We're getting to. We're getting some guesses coming through, and we're starting to eliminate some um, some critters. Mm. So this is a what am I? What kind of creature am I? It's a critter quiz this morning. So, um, yeah. oh, okay. We also had someone who has called through for Leviathan. <gasps> oh, also yeah. incorrect. Mm. So it's not a grasshopper. It's not a worm. It is not a Leviathan. What is this critter? Um, sent, keep sending them through, mm-hmm. and. Everyone that comes through is helpful to somebody else. Yeah. 
Okay. Back to your story. Back to the stories. Or, um, well, Lyle, do you like sharks? No. <laughs> well, get this. Generally speaking, no. Well, you know, I really only have a problem with a couple of species of sharks. Ah. I think actually the ones that I dislike the most are actually bull sharks. Oh. They hang out in rivers and that kind of stuff, river mouths and estuaries. Yeah. They kind of give me the creeps a little bit more than the great white for some reason. I don't know. It's just a personal phobia. Just a personal thing. Yeah, no. That's yeah. Okay. So there's a, there's a couple of species of sharks that I have an objection to and I think the world would be a better place without. <laughs> and Such I would not be ashamed if they, it disappointed if they became extinct or reduced to. I've heard this before. Yes. <laughs> but about cats. <laughs> Right. There are only one or two species on the planet that I'm like, yeah, if these went extinct, I wouldn't cry. Well, let me continue. Okay, Get so, this. All right. So sharks, you're going to tell me sharks are a good thing. I know this. I, I can see where this is going. Well. I give up. I just give up. Sharks. Right. They've discovered sharks, but glow in the dark sharks. Whoa. That's a good idea. I, I, I move that we make all sharks glow in the dark sharks. You know what? It would help us. It would. Yeah, um, that's right. You better see them coming. Yeah, you're I am out of here. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> you can't win with Lyle. Okay, well, this shark, uh, it's a, uh, it's a kitten, kitterfin shark. Um, it's now thought to be the largest, the world's largest bioluminescent vertebrae that lives in the twilight zone between 300 and 1,000 metres underwater. This five-foot-long shark was confirmed as a glowing species in a recent study off the eastern coast of New Zealand. Dude, that is just epically cool. Yeah. I like sharks that live 5,000 feet below the surface. <laughs> They're my favourite. <laughs> Bio- so the bioluminescence is a well-established um, uh, phenomenon uh, uh, among deep sea life, and it's not the first time to be documented among sharks. Um However, you're wondering, oh, why would they do that? You know, they are hunters by nature. Yeah, wouldn't it be better to just hide in the dark? Well, they the, the hypothesis is that this glow-in-the-dark for these kind of sharks kind of work like how stripes do for zebras and how snakes, like the patterns, certain patterns will kind of, uh, this, the animals won't sense them until it's too late. I don't know how, but that's, that's the theory. It's like. So it attracts prey and it sort of, I don't, yeah, that's just. This sure. is amazing. We need to learn more about this. <laughs> I love, I love the fact that every time we discover something new, we find out how much we don't know. Oh. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. All right, so let's talk about uh, cashless society. Do you use cash? Not often, no. no. You know, I, they reckon that Australia is going to be cashless in three years. I can see and that. It's been, yeah. And it's been particularly driven by COVID because, huh? you know, particularly when COVID lockdown first came in, I saw a lot of, uh, quite a number of elderly people using cards for the first time ever in their life. Wow. And sort of having to, you know, standing in line while the uh, checkout person was giving the instructions. Okay, this is what you do with the card. This is how it works. Oh. And, uh, and and of course, that's moved everybody over to cards who were still sort of hanging on with cash a little bit. Mm. Um, I only ever use cash and less and less so when I'm making, you know, Facebook Marketplace or Gumtree gum mm. uh, purchases yep. um, or sales. But, you know, when I sell stuff, I'd say probably 50 or buy stuff on Gumtree or Facebook, 50% of it is just, you know, direct deposit straight into the bank, just an EFT. Yeah. So it's definitely on its way out. They reckon it will be basically gone uh, in three years. And Australia is leading the world, one of the f- top four nations in the world, 
for cashlessness. Really? Wow. That's interesting. A lot of people say that, well, that's going to bring about the mark of the beast. Um, no, you don't need cashless society to bring about the mark of the beast, and the Bible doesn't say that cashless society will do that. The Bible does say that your buying and selling will be controlled, and, well, that would be pretty easy to control regardless of whether cash exists or not. Mm. Anyway, uh, another story here. This is coming out of Tasmania, and um, the lower house has just passed a... Um, the Voluntary Euthanasia Bill or the Assisted Suicide Bill uh, in Tasmania. Queensland is trying to rush theirs through, uh, which is worrying. And I thought this would be an opportunity we probably should take to discuss the issue of uh, assisted suicide, Mm. voluntary euthanasia, whichever term you prefer to use. Uh, And, you know, I guess from an emotional perspective... Out of all of the really dodgy things that is going on in our world the mo- at the most, from an emotional perspective, this is the one that I kind of lean the most towards supporting and yet cannot from a Christian mm. perspective. I mean, the first thing that um, assisted suicide or voluntary euthanasia does from a Christian perspective is it rules out God. Mm. You know, God is some, we serve a God who is a God who has the power to heal and uh, because he has the power to heal, then he does heal on occasions and you take your own life and then you've ruled God out of the equation. And I don't think human human beings should ever do that. Mm. So that's kind of where I start. The other thing that it does is that it means, you know, a person's probation is closed as soon as they die and God should be the only one who chooses when a person's probation closes. Mm. So that's sort of where I start with this issue. Then there's a whole bunch of other issues that I think are worth talking about. There's the slippery slope. If we look at those countries that have introduced uh, assisted suicide a long time ago, like I think the Netherlands was, what, 10, 20 years ago, uh, they have now moved on to um, non-voluntary euthanasia, and that is really concerning. That is very frightening where, you know, they've got, you know, heavily disabled people that, whose lives they're taking who cannot make consent, and that says a really bad thing about society and which move, which which brings me on to the next point which is what does this do about the do with the way that society thinks mm. you know when we suddenly decide that it's okay to take a human life if the circumstances dictate it that is damaging to you know the way we view the sanctity of life as a society and it makes life less valuable I've lived in societies where life is less less value and valuable, and it's just you know it's not really a good thing. All right, it uh, accepts that accepts that some lives, um, some lives are worth more than others. So it um, you know basically, if a person is elderly, and if they have a terminal illness, then their work, their life is worth less. Mm. That's concerning. Then there's the cost effective aspect to it. Voluntary euthanasia, assisted suicide, is going to be very good for our economy. That automatically places pressure. You can't, that can't not place pressure on both yes. people and doctors. Yeah. I mean, look at how this works in the, in the, uh, in the criminal justice system. So we can't afford to put people in jail, so we have a lot less people in jail, a lot more people on the street because of economic factors. Magistrates are under pressure not to put people into 
in jail because it's going to be costly to do so. And so that's not good for society because of the economic pressure. Pass this through into legislation and suddenly you're going to have economic pressure on doctors and nurses to even subconsciously encourage voluntary euthanasia. You don't have to use words to communicate with a person. That's not healthy for society. Um, it discourages the search for new cures. It's like, okay, if you've got this, then this is the solution. Uh, no, we don't want the final solution. We want people looking for new cures. And, and look at how far we have gone with with illnesses that were once, you know, a death sentence, that were terminal illnesses, you know, even in the last, even in the last 20 years. Mm. Um, it undermi- undermines the motivation for good care. It's like, well, why should we provide good care when we have this option available? Um, it, the pressure. There is pressure on the individual who has terminal illness simply because the legislation exists. If you are terminally ill, even if, your, even if your family loves you and cares for you, in fact, the more they love you and the more they care for you, the more you're going to feel like, I shouldn't be a burden to them. And elderly people should never, ever have that kind of pressure. People who are vulnerable and people who are terminally ill should not be living day by day right through the last days of their life with that kind of pressure placed upon them. And there's also the pressure from selfish families, and we say, ah, there's no such thing as a selfish family. Have you ever noticed how many families rip themselves apart after somebody dies while they fight over the will? And you can't tell me that those kinds of families, and there is a lot of them, wouldn't have opportunity to place pressure on somebody to end their life. That's a, that's a really scary one right there. Um, there's the pressure to free up hospital beds, you know, just... Um, and there's also the aspect that, you know, suffering is not necessarily a bad thing all the time. I've got lots of people who suffer with terrible diseases and they thank God for it because it has brought them closer to God. Not something I can comment on myself because I've never had that kind of suffering, but that's the testimony I've heard. Anyway, this other story, I do want to cover this one real quick. Um, this one is coming out of uh, Murdoch Children's Research Institute in Melbourne. It's just amazing. They have been able to capture for the very first time a baby's first breaths. Now, this was something that we always thought was pretty simple. They just, you know, they come out of the womb they and they start breathing and everything starts working. They have found that this process is incredibly complex. Really? Oh. Because it's the first breath that kind of triggers everything and gets all of the different organs started and moving and operating. Now, the heart's already pumping and there's a few things that are already happening, but there's a whole bunch of organs in the baby's body that have just been sitting there doing nothing, you know, the lungs, and the lungs are the trigger that starts them all. So you take the first breath and there's electrical impulse goes through and says, okay, this starts, this starts, this starts, this starts, all these, like, start working now. It's kind of like the, uh, they've described it as the Big Bang moment. Um, and they, the, the best thing that a baby can do, they've found, is have a good cry. Come out of the womb, have a good cry, give it a slap on the butt. <laughs> um, now, the other thing is interesting. If babies' lungs are having trouble clearing fluid and they're really, really fragile, babies' lungs, 
Babies are able to move air to another part of the lungs to protect the fragile tissue while the fluid is being cleared out of there. How did all of this evolve? You know, you think about it. What's the possibility of something like that coming about Mm. by accident? You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Mm-hmm. All right, so joining us on the phone this morning is uh, Dr. Paul Wood, who joins us on a monthly basis to talk about issues in relationship to good health. Dr. Wood, welcome to the show. Good morning, Lyle. Great to have you on the show again this morning, and we've got this fascinating uh, piece of research that has come out in the media, uh, fresh out of Torrens University, demonstrating a marked difference in life experience expectancy for neighbouring suburbs of various cities, uh, both urban and regional in Australia. A couple of examples that were cited. So, for instance, um, in the Newcastle region, so that's where we uh, trans- broadcast the breakfast show from, uh, if you go, if you live in Mayfield, Warrabrook, Waratah, North Lambton, you have a life expectancy of 86 years. If you live in Maryland, uh, Fletcher or Minmi, I've got a bunch of friends who live in Fletcher, uh, you have a life expectancy of just 69 years. That's quite a stark difference. Dr. Wood, what's going on here? Yeah, you're right. So that's, that's like a 17-year discrepancy between suburbs that are very much, you know, neighbours. Yeah, I mean, I they're like, what, a, a kilometre or two apart. Yeah, Exactly. And you presume that, that the genetics would be fairly similar in those neighbourhoods. And it, it's giving credence to this concept that perhaps your postcode is more important than your genetic code when it comes to determining um, your health and, um, in this case, the longevity. Well, that's very powerful evidence, you know, when you talk about a 17-year gap from one postcode to the next. Yeah, absolutely. The other interesting thing they're finding in the research too, and this is one of the leading researchers in this area is a chap by the name of Sir Michael Mummett. And... Um, he wrote a book called The Health Gap. But, um, what, what he found is that when it comes to disability as well, um, people from less affluent areas have up to a 20 year, um, average of disability compared to those in more affluent areas of, of 12 years of disability. So that's like an eight year gap. And I guess when you think that those life expectancies are shorter in, in less affluent areas and there's more years of disability, um, there's actually much fewer years as a percentage when it comes to quality of life. Okay, this is this is like doing my head in, but um, and, and this is going to be a slight sidetrack. But basically, the, what you're saying there is that in a best case scenario, on average, we can expect uh, twelve years of our life for us to be disabled. If you're from a, a more affluent area, and if you're from a less affluent area, um, twenty years. Right, so that's a lot of disability to kind of look forward to. That's a bit discouraging. Looking forward to to uh, you know to old age with uh, with that in mind, um, and because we've got this stark contrast between affluent and um, less affluent, then we should be able to understand what is causing these disabilities and why people are dying so much younger in a less affluent area? I mean, if, if I look at that, you know, you've got uh, people living in an affluent area, their disability is starting really, you know, um, when they're into their 70s. Um, they're not having any kind of disability until they're into their 70s, whereas in a low socioeconomic area, 
they're becoming disabled in their 50s. Correct. And even, and even younger in many cases. That's pretty yeah. severe, yeah. Absolutely. And look, there's a, there's a bunch of factors that have been looked at that we think could potentially be contributing. But um, I, I guess when you examine less affluent areas, you tend to find things such as you know, high rates of smoking, um, you tend to find poorer diets, often less physically active. You know, they, they can't afford that, that gym membership and perhaps communities which they live aren't safe to exercise in. Um, lower, lower rates of education, so less, less knowledge about what healthy lifestyles might look like. Um, less safe communities, and we mentioned that can affect physical activity, but it can also affect your level of stress. Like if you're having, if, if you're worried about your, your life, um, that, um, that stress is not physically healthy either. Uh, also, we can, we can delve into this more, but also, um, this, this idea of short-term thinking is being looked at as well, um, as, as something we see in, in, in such communities, and also a, a greater prevalence of, of people who had, or had, had experienced adverse childhood events. So when you talk about short-term thinking, what are you, what are you talking about there? Is that the kind of uh, thinking where um, I'm going to live hard, enjoy it, and die young? Is that what we're talking yeah, about? Or? Not, not quite. So I, I guess you can imagine if you, let's say you've, you skip a meal and you get to dinner time and you're absolutely just starving. All you can think about is food. Um, and, and that's thinking about food at the exclusion of thinking about anything else. Or if you've got a deadline, for example, and I find this kind of a deadline, I just lock everything else out and focus on that deadline. And my, my long-term strategic thinking isn't, isn't working quite so well when I'm focusing on that deadline. And I guess when you're, when you're poor, come from a less affluent area, your, your focus may be simply on survival. So if you're on the, on the deadline, you're thinking, where's my next meal coming from? And therefore, long-term thinking in regards to health about, you know, what effects might like, like these cigarettes have on my, on my life expectancy or, what effect might this diet have on my on my health? You know, eating this fast food. Those thoughts don't come to mind quite severely when you're more concerned about distilling your stomach and living from meal to meal. Yep, yep, that kind of makes sense. Um, I can see how that would uh, would happen. Some people, you know, and and having been to developing countries where people li- literally live from one meal to the next, the last thing that they're thinking about is, you know, what am I going to do when I'm eighty six years old? Um, they are worried about what am I going to eat for the next meal. Yeah, and look, look, it's really interesting this effect um, of poverty on cognitive function or your thinking ability. And what, what they've actually found is that um, poverty is, when you experience significant poverty, is actually equivalent to going, going for a night without sleep in terms of the effect that it has on your ability to think things through clearly. Um, so not the moment it's put the health gap notes that... Um, and I quoted here, he says, the poor need not only money, but also security of mind that allows a fuller range of mental functions to flourish. So if, if we really want to help people think clearly about their lifestyle choices, um, we need to take steps to help alleviate their, their, their financial situations or their, or their poverty. Now, there's also, so, also some uh, adverse childhood effects here um, in the low socioeconomic areas. Um, maybe we should mention those as well. Yeah, and look, this is really fascinating. Um, there's been a, a bunch of studies done called the, the ACE studies, which basically stands for Adverse Childhood Events. And um, what we're finding is these adverse childhood events can even start in the womb. So and those adverse childhood events can include psychological, uh, physical, or sexual abuse. But um, just imagine for a moment if you've got a, a mum who's pregnant who's been exposed to domestic violence, um, 
that, that stress that she's experiencing actually gets passed on to the fetus in, in the womb. And then that, um, that same fetus as it becomes a, a child by witness domestic violence, uh, might experience um, physical or sexual abuse. And the more of these adverse childhood events that, that children experience, the higher the risk of developing various lifestyle-related diseases, such as um, depression, um, suicide, drug and alcohol abuse, diabetes, emphysema, heart disease, stroke, and, and cancer. So we're talking about a really wide range of diseases that can be influenced by um, your, your childhood. And I think in some of these uh, lower socioeconomic uh, you know, suburbs, in many ways we're looking at traumatised societies because a lot of this kind of abuse just seems to be you know, endemic to some of these areas. Absolutely. And, and you see this, this kind of kind of situations being often generational. So, you know, kids see certain behaviours models and that's all they know and then they're going to repeat those things. So, look, you know, some of your listeners today might be um, growing up in those kind of environments. And, you know, I, I encourage people when they sort of recognise the problem to sort of think about it and, and think, what can I do to break these cycles of, of, of generational um I guess in this case, and this childhood events that can, that can affect one generation to the next. Yes, and that's where we need to move on and to talk about now because we've really identified the problem. But what do we actually do? How can we how can we do something to solve these problems? Yes, yeah, so one one mantra you hear in public health circles is is helping helping to make the healthy choice the easy choice. So let's face it, we all tend to go to the easy options, and um, if if the easy options in the community in which you live is not to exercise, it's not to eat healthy foods because they're not available, um, that can be an issue. So uh, one thing we can do is is, is advocate with, lo- with local governments to address things like food deserts. And uh, what I mean by food desert is that in many of these communities from low socioeconomic backgrounds, um, all you might find available is a, um, a local takeaway or a tobacconist. And... Um, so what people tend to buy is the, is the foods that are readily available because they may not have transport, for example. Um, whereas if they had fresh produce readily available in the community, it might be a, an option that then people tend, tend to use. Um, there's also been research done on looking at um, things like sugar taxes um, and, and using those sugar taxes perhaps to reduce the cost of healthy foods like fruits and vegetables. Um, we know that when, when the price of sugar sweet and beverages like soft drinks goes up, um, consumption tends to go down. Um, now, we don't have one of those in, in this country yet, despite some um, many health professionals lobbying for us. Um, that's, um, that's a factor. Another factor is empowering people to make decisions that will positively influence their health and well-being. So I guess this is something where I see churches as playing a really helpful role. Um, you know, Christ encourages to be to use the metaphors of life and salt um, if you're happy to... Um, encourages to positively influence our communities, but they're helping equip people with knowledge and skills. Um, this one includes running cooking classes in your community. They're teaching kids how to cook cheap and healthy meals or their, or their parents as well. Um, also creating positive peer pressure environments. Now, let's face it, in, in, in low socioeconomic communities, often there's, there's plenty of negative peer pressure to go around. So that might include things like walking groups, um, or addiction support groups, you know, environments where people feel safe and feel like they're surrounded by people like them who are on a similar journey to what they want to be on in terms of where they want to go. Yeah, and, and, and I think that um, you know churches have a major role to play here in making the communities a better place because 
a lot of people who would like to be on a you know on a better path on a better journey can find the social connectedness and the you know the moral support i guess you would say um at you know at their local church where you're going to find people who are genuinely interested in making you know their lives and other people's lives better Absolutely, and it, uh, I guess we look at the life of Christ. I mean, often, um, not always, but often he would he would work on, on meeting people's physical needs before he targeted the spiritual needs. I guess because you recognise in human nature, if, if you've got a hungry tummy or you you know you've got some physical problem that's um, causing significant discomfort, um, and that's all you can think about. It's hard to sort of think about spiritual the matters of eternal life and those kind of things. So, I think we have that model for us in, in, in Christ's life. Um, and I guess too, you know, I was, I was looking in Matthew where it talks about um, how um, when 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 Christ comes again, he he looks at this this concept of of you know, did we feed the hungry or, or did we um, clothe the naked or, or, or give water to the thirsty or visit the um, visit the prisoners? You know, these these very practical concepts, I guess, which help to to lift a lot of people in our communities that that often often do struggle. This is. This is really something that he's calling Christians to get engaged in. Yes, Dr. Paul Wood, thank you so much for joining us here on uh, Faith FM this morning. This is uh, just absolutely fascinating research and food for thought for all of us. Where do we live? How does that affect uh, our longevity, longevity and lifestyle? And what can we do for people who live in a postcode that may not be as well off as ours? Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.